Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. morning, River's Edge. Matt Deason here. We uh, started this morning in a new series in which we'll be journeying through the entire Bible together in a year. And we started this morning with the first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 1. And we uh, lost the podcast recording from this morning, so I figured I would uh, re-record it to the best of my ability uh, because it's going to be important for what comes next. But if you were here last week, you know that we wrapped up the vision series by talking about the art of reading the scriptures. And we invited the entire church to read the Bible in a year. And if you've never done that before, it is an amazing, transformative, and sometimes confusing journey. And so we are doing two things as a community that will hopefully enhance your reading of scripture. The first one is that over the course of the next year, we are going to do an overview of the entire narrative arc of scripture, teaching through the Bible in a year on Sundays as you read through it in a year on your own time. And the second thing that we've done is to create a Google number so that you can text in questions as you go. And that number is uh, on our website, but uh, many of you started reading in Genesis last Sunday. And these are just some of the questions that we've gotten so far. Number one, did Cain marry his sister? It just mentions he and Abel, and then all of a sudden he's married. Question two, what is a Nephilim? And why are males referred to as sons of God and females called daughters of men in that passage of Genesis? Number three, what happened to the dinosaurs? Were they on the ark too? To which I would say, great questions. Keep the questions coming and we will do our best to answer them through the course of this series. And we're already thinking that we may end up doing some Q&A sessions uh, after some of our Sunday gatherings, exploring some of the questions that have been texted in, uh, or maybe even adding some additional podcasts in which we tackle as many questions as we can. But for now, we are going to kick off the series with the very first verse in the Bible and only the first verse in the Bible. There are over 23,000 verses in your Bible, and this morning we are covering one. If you're turned there, you can read along with me. This is what it says. This is the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And already, the controversy abounds. Inside the church, there is perhaps one word that we agree on. God. God created the universe. He created solar systems and stars, vast galaxies beyond counting or comprehension. God created the earth. He created each one of us, and therefore, the universe is filled with meaning and purpose. 
but how did God create the universe? When did God create the universe? What exactly is the first verse talking about? Within the global community of Jesus followers, the varying interpretations abound. For example, there are many who would view the first verse simply as a chapter title. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And starting in verse 2, the Bible is going to tell us how God created them. But others would look at verse 1 and say, no, 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 no. Verse 1 is God creating the universe. And verse 2 begins by talking about something much more narrow in scope. For example, when used separately, the words the heavens and the earth mean two specific things. The earth is, well, planet earth, and the heavens is the sky, the place where the birds fly, the area above our head. And so at first glance, we might be reading about God making the earth and the sky and setting them up for human habitation. But, many scholars point out that when these phrases are used together, side by side, they actually take on a different definition in the Hebrew mind. To say earth is one thing, and to say heavens or sky is another. But to say the heavens and the earth is a unique phrase that actually takes on a new meaning, and essentially it means everything. The earth, the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that exists. I think of the English phrase, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. And you can have a, a kit or you can have a caboodle, whatever those are. But when you put them together, they take on a unique meaning. The whole kit and caboodle is just everything, A to Z, all that is there. And if that's true, then verse 1 is not simply a title introducing what God is about to do, but rather it is a summation sentence of what God already has done. To make matters more complex, the phrase, in the beginning, has its own special meaning and association as well. In the modern Western mind, the beginning is simply a fixed point when something started. It's like the pistol going off at the start of a race, this decisive moment, the beginning, right then and there. But the Hebrew phrase being used here is actually a single word pronounced reshit. And the reshit was an undetermined period of time, a prior time, or even a previous era. And so as you venture through the pages of scripture, you will find reshit used in other places. For example, it could refer to the period of time when a king had been chosen or anointed for leadership, but not yet taken power because another king was ruling. That was their uh, reshit, their beginning time, the, the prior time before their reign. Sometimes it was months, 
Sometimes it was decades. The length wasn't specified. It was just this prior unspecified period of time that was their beginnings or the lead up to what happens next. It's as if to say there was this prior time when all this other stuff happened and now we're going to focus in on what happens next. Now we're going to start into a sequence of events that has unique significance. And so in the context, of the first verse in the Bible, you could end up with two very different readings. Sort of a common modern Western way of reading the verses might sound something like this. At a specific time, God made planet Earth and the atmosphere around it, the sun and stars, etc. And you are about to read how he did it. But then you've got others who are looking at the first verse in Hebrew and reading Genesis 1 verse 1 to say, in an unknown period of time, God created everything that exists out of nothing. And you are about to read what he did next after that unknown period when he ordered life for human flourishing and brought humans into existence. Do you see the difference? in those two interpretations of verse one. According to the second theory, the Hebrew is telling us that it was during the Reshit that God physically made everything out of nothing. How long was that period? Well, according to this interpretation, the scriptures are intentionally vague. It was just the before time, the beginnings, the reshit, the previous era, the lead up to what happens next. Could have been days, could have been billions of years. The text doesn't seem at all concerned with that issue. But you see how our interpretation of the first few words is going to set the tone for what comes next. The one thing that we all agree on within the church is that whatever was created in verse 1, and regardless of how much was created or how long it took, God created it. The God of the Bible created the universe and made everything from nothing at all. And that is a stunning claim. So inside the church, the one thing that we all agree on is that it was God. Outside of the church, the tension goes in the exact opposite direction. Generally speaking, the secular culture agrees with everything in verse 1 except for the word God. They would probably rewrite Genesis 1, verse 1, to say, In the beginning there was nothing, and the universe exploded into being. The first verse of the Bible kind of makes sense, but because we are modern and enlightened and we know now that God is just a myth and we ignore the possibility that God could have created the universe because we've already begun our analysis with the assumption that God doesn't exist. Verse 1 is great, but you have to white out the word God in order for it to be true. That's the, the secular perspective. So inside the church, we all agree it was God. When did God create the physical universe and how long did it take? Well, that's a matter of debate. And we'll explore some of the top explanations of Genesis chapter 1 in two weeks. But regardless of which interpretation you hold to, we all agree that it was God.
The secular culture, on the other hand, is reacting against Christianity and has typically said that God did not create the universe and they've looked to science in order to tell a different story. So I'll start with the assumption that God isn't there, that he couldn't possibly be there, and now I'll look to uh, the findings of science as an attempt to tell a different story or to fill in the gaps. But the fascinating thing is that science itself has begun to point powerfully toward the theory of a creator God. As science advances on all fronts, it is beginning to make discoveries about the universe that point unmistakably toward the idea that there's a creator behind it. For example, when it comes to physics, there are at least 30 different laws and constants that have to be uh, balanced on a razor's edge in order for life to be possible. Now, that's not in order to get life. That's just to make the space available for life to even become a possibility. So if you're thinking about different uh, values in physics, if you're thinking about sort of the strength and, and value of gravitational force, uh, how much do things pull on each other, or uh, the nuclear force holding atoms together, or the speed at which the universe is expanding outwards, and, and you've got dozens of other factors, well, they all have to be fine-tuned in order for life to emerge. If the universe was expanding any faster or slower, life would not be possible. If gravity was any stronger or weaker, then life would not be possible. And on down the list it goes. Change one of those factors, just a millimeter, and life is not possible. But, if you'll allow me to geek out for a second, the chances of gravity randomly being set at just the right level, universe-wide, is not a 1 in 3 or 1 in 10. Uh, if it was 1 in 3 or even 1 in 10, you might say, yeah, I think perhaps uh, we kind of randomly uh, got to that number. If it was 1 in 100, I would probably say, ah, you know, 1 in 100, that's not great odds. Maybe that that couldn't have been an accident. But the probability of getting the exact right strength for gravity is one in countless billions. If the universe had a one in three chance, maybe. One in 10, ah, okay. But one in countless billions. And you look at that and say, that that could not have been an accident. Somehow it ended up just right. That, that goes beyond random chance and sort of screams impossible. And it only gets crazier from there. If you take just two factors out of the 30, say uh, the exact speed at which the universe is expanding and uh, the value of gravity, there is a one in 100 million trillion, 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 trillion chance of getting it right. And we're only two factors in. You've got one universe, one roll of the dice, and somehow it happened. By the time you add in all 30 factors, well, you get the point. It's a number that would take me multiple minutes just to say. It is, for all practical purposes, impossible. 
random chance could not have generated the universe that we live in. It, it actually has to be something else. And, and that comes with certain theological implications that many aren't comfortable making in the scientific realm. And all we've even mentioned so far is physics. We haven't even mentioned the impossibility of DNA or all the factors that had to come together perfectly in order for life to even be a distant possibility on planet Earth. But the point is, you start running all of the numbers and all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds are running the numbers and starting to conclude that the most logical and perhaps the most plausible explanation is that there is an intelligent creator behind the universe. And if you're curious about the intersection uh, between faith and science and how the two uh, relate to each other, we are actually going to explore that concept more uh, next Sunday. But for now, I just want us to consider some of the evidence being produced by science. Because you start adding up the numbers and it screams impossible. Statistically speaking, we should not be here. The universe should not be able to support life. DNA shouldn't exist. Statistically speaking, it should not be happening, and yet it is. From a statistical perspective, the numbers couldn't be screaming any louder. God's fingerprints are everywhere. The signposts abound, which ironically is what the scriptures have been saying all along. Psalm 19 says it this way. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In other words, the physical created world is speaking to us. It's talking to us about God. It's buzzing with the energy and evidence of its creator. We just need ears to hear. And in fact, many of us don't want to hear because we don't like the conclusions that it draws. The book of Romans says it this way. It says, What may be known about God is plain to them, as into all of humanity, because God has made it plain to them, not through the Gospels or through the church or any of that. This is what it says. It says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. In other words, even in the complete absence of physics or genetics or cosmology, you should be able to look at creation and understand in your heart that God is real. Not all of us are going to understand the statistical significance of recent scientific discoveries, but every human being can look up at night 
and see stars. And God's heart is that people all over the planet would look up at the night sky or at the top of a mountain or stand at the edge of the ocean and be moved by what they see that those places would speak to them and tug at their hearts and remind them that God exists. They are designed to say something about God's presence and his beauty and his majesty. And, and you don't have to decode a strand of DNA in order to grasp it. It's right in front of our faces. I grew up self-identifying as an atheist. I didn't believe in God. I didn't need to believe in God. No one could prove to me that God existed. And the whole idea seemed a bit foolish. I had no desire to step into church, no reason to. But the first thing that started to change my mind was the mountains. It was standing up on a ridge at Mount Rainier. It was standing at the edge of the Pacific Ocean, letting the surf wash over my feet. It was standing at the edge of, of a field and, and watching wheat blow gently in the wind. Because when I stood in those places, I, I was moved by them. Something started tugging at my heart and I said, this, this isn't an accident. There's got to be more at play here than just random chance in, in a vacuum. There has to. The world is just too beautiful. It's too ordered. It's too profound to attribute it all to random chance. And that left the door open for me to come a little closer and start asking more questions and lean in a bit. And that was the start of a journey that brought me face to face with God. But that's what the Bible is saying. The most convincing evidence in my mind is coming from cosmology and genetics and physics and statistical analysis. But the most available evidence is right outside your door. His invisible qualities are being displayed there. They are pouring out speech night after night, day after day. And so whether it's through physics or logic or beauty or the scriptures, the moment you sign on to Genesis 1 verse 1, everything changes. Everything. If this is true, if Genesis 1 verse 1 is true, then it changes everything. If we are really talking about a being who designed DNA and fine-tuned the universe for life, then it means all of the universe is loaded with purpose and meaning and nothing else in the Bible should surprise us. If God really made the universe out of nothing and set hundreds of billions of stars in motion, then parting the Red Sea is nothing. If God made a hundred billion galaxies with hundreds of trillions of stars, is it really hard to believe that he parted some water or turned water into wine or told a storm to stop or healed a leper 
or cause the blinds to see again, or raise someone from the dead. Death is nothing to him. Nothing. You see, once you place your faith in the very first verse of the Bible, once you say, I'm on board with that, and the evidence certainly supports that conclusion, then you've officially tipped the first domino, and everything else starts to fall into place. If you reject the first verse, then you actually have a lot of explaining to do, and you end up with wild theories about how the universe came into being. And you have people publishing books right now, 2018. You have people arguing for a self-created universe, which to be clear, violates just about every rule of science and logic. You have people arguing for a universe machine that has randomly pumped out trillions of parallel universes and we just happen to live in the one that has life. You have people arguing that if you bump two rocks together long enough, you somehow get life and the complexity of DNA. And yet, there is not one shred of evidence to support any of those claims. None. They are completely wild and made-up theories that come across to me as a desperate attempt to avoid the truth that Genesis 1 conveys. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you believe that, everything changes and you're in for a wild ride because it will shift the way that you view the universe and it will change the way you view God and it will change the way you view yourself. And ultimately, placing your faith in Genesis 1 verse 1 places us on the path to hope. If you reject verse 1 of the Bible and opt instead for theories of random chance in a self-made universe, then you have no hope. You can hope that humanity gets better over time. It hasn't yet, but you can hope that. You can hope that you lead a good life and make some contribution to the survival of your species. But you cannot have true and lasting hope. You have nothing to say in the face of tragedy. You have nothing to say in the face of hardship. You have nothing to say in the face of death. But if you are on board with Genesis 1, verse 1, then you have every reason to hope. Because if God created the universe, then he created you. And that means that all of this is filled with meaning and intention and purpose. And you read a little further into the story and you realize that the God who created the universe hasn't abandoned it or retreated from it, but is still very much present. And that gives us hope for today. The God of the universe is with you. The same one who put the stars and galaxies in motion, who designed DNA, who fine-tuned the universe for life, he knows your name.
Many of you know uh, the story of the church plant. We started about two years ago, uh, but the first six months were brutal. Uh, tons of people left. We were struggling in our original building. Our numbers dropped down into the 20s, and it seemed that we were going to die. And uh, at the same time, uh, we thought we were going to lose our building completely. And I got dragged before this other church's council uh, where I was accused of lying to them and trying to sabotage their church. And the whole thing, just felt like it was imploding. And it was painful and disorienting and just difficult to have this thing that you've devoted yourself to start to wither and die in your hands. Some of you know that feeling. And I thought, well, oh, okay, well, this, this might be it. Uh, this might be the end. And so one uh, winter night, I left the house late at night and went up to the building that we were renting and i just stood out in the parking lot and prayed and and lamented and mourned and just just kind of talked with god god what is happening right now what are we doing wrong why did you call us here if it was just going to die? Uh, where are you in all of this? Is, is this really where it all comes to an end? And as I was uh, praying and pouring out my heart and, and listening, I just sensed God in that moment whisper to me. And in that moment of despair, he said, look up. Look up. And, and I looked up. And there was the crisp winter night sky full of stars. And he said, look at those stars. Do you know who made them? And I had to think about that for a moment I had to really wrap my mind around it because it's really hard for me to grasp. Oh, whoa, yeah, okay. I, I get it. And there's God again. Hey, do you think you can trust me? Can you trust me to build this church? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I can. That, that makes sense to me. If you can do that, God, you can do anything. And I trust you. I trust you with my life. I trust you to build this church. In fact, even if it fails, I trust you. Because I believe in Genesis 1, verse 1, it changes the way that I think about God. For those who know the story of Job, he is a man who loves God, but goes through horrible tragedy. And his life uh, just kind of implodes and, and just shreds in his hands. And he has uh, friends that come around him, but they give pretty terrible advice. And ultimately, uh, Job wants to put God on trial. He wants to question God's goodness in light of what's happened to him. And God's response is really interesting. First, God listens. And he listens a lot for a really long time. He's just with Job and he listens. But then he responds to Job by pointing to the physical universe. 
Job 38, he says, Hey, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Job, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. And it goes on and on, multiple chapters of God pointing to the miracle of the ordered physical universe. In other words, God is saying, Job, I, I, this is what I do in creating and running the physical universe. Do you think you can trust me with the moral universe? Job, you see everything that I've created. Will you trust me? And thousands of years after Job, with all of the evidence laid at my feet, I look up at the night sky, which is pouring forth speech, and what I hear is, trust me. Trust me. Trust me with your life. Trust me with the things that I call you to. Trust my ability to run the moral universe. And ultimately, trust me to recreate the world that you live in. We have every reason to trust. And we have every reason to hope. And we have hope for this life because the God who created the universe hasn't abandoned it. And we have hope for the age to come because the God who created the universe has promised to recreate it. A new heavens and a new earth. That's how the scriptures end. A year from now, when we reach the final pages of Scripture, we will read these words. This is Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea or, or chaos in the Hebrew mind. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. That's it. That's the final destination to which all creation is headed. Genesis 1 tells us that the universe had a beginning, and almost implicit in a beginning is the reality that it will have an end. And this is it, the end goal, a new heavens and a new earth, where all who have come to the cross of Jesus and been reconciled to God will be there, has restored humanity in a renewed universe. And I have to admit, there are days when I find that hard to grasp. The idea that God will remake and restore the entire universe, flooding it with his presence. There are days when I look out and say, say God, it, it seems the world has been the same way for so long. Are we really to believe that it will so radically be changed and remade? But on the days I find that hard to believe, I open my Bible to Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens 
and the earth. And if that's true, then it changes everything. And if that's true, then I can trust him. And if that's true, and God really created the universe, then certainly he can restore it as well. If he created it out of nothing, certainly we can trust him to redeem it. If he built this car from scratch in his garage, certainly we can trust him to give it a new engine. Genesis 1, verse 1, sets the tone for all of Scripture and gives us real, tangible hope for the future that we anticipate. And if that's true, then life has to be different tomorrow morning because we live in a universe that's wired with meaning and purpose and direction. And it means that your life matters and what you do matters and you're here on purpose and the universe is headed somewhere and the God of Genesis 1 verse 1 is inviting you to partner with him and and go where this world is headed and to be present there for the recreation Genesis 1 but but reimagined in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm